Happy Friday. Uh, you know, far too often we, and certainly I, utter that phrase quite thoughtlessly, uh, and often at the expense of the other six days of the week, particularly Monday through Thursday. Uh, I dare go so far as to say we may at times do this sinfully if and when we use it as an opportunity to take a certain name in vain, right? We say TGIF was the G. You know, I was truly thankful to him for the day uh, itself. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, there's absolutely nothing wrong with, with saying that. Granted, we truly mean it and are truly thankful. But all that aside, and the reason why I'm saying it now, uh, and the reason why we can each happily affirm the same is because it is indeed a, a, a very good Friday, a very happy Friday. For on this particular day in our calendar year, we commemorate the suffering death of a man who walked the earth some 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth. What's more, we know that this man was no ordinary man, nor was he merely a man, but rather, as he himself attests on numerous occasions, the very Son of Man and simultaneously the eternal Son of God. Uh, now, there have been biblical and logical arguments uh, presented as to whether or not Friday was the actual day on which Jesus was crucified, some arguing for Thursday, even Wednesday. However, I believe scripture and church history uh, are overwhelmingly support of Friday uh, death, of Friday crucifixion, and the Friday day on, the day, uh, day on which he died. And you can take, for instance, Mark 15, verses 42 to 47, where we see Joseph of Arimathea on the evening of the crucifixion seeking from Pilate the body of Jesus to bury. Verse 42 tells us, it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath. The Sabbath, of course, being Saturday and therefore the day before Friday. There's also Matthew 16, 21 and Luke uh, 9, 22, both of which portray Jesus among his disciples saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So again, if he was raised on the third day, it is not illogical to conclude that the first day was a Friday. Even if some would propose the words third day are more aptly translated three days, uh, in keeping with Jesus' own exposition of himself concerning uh, the prophet Jonah in Matthew 12, 40, then one can still reconcile that with a Friday crucifixion because in the mind of a first-century Jew, a part of a day was counted even as a whole day. Right? So presuming Jesus was in the grave for a part of Friday, all of Saturday, and then a part of Sunday, by that very standard, he could be, then have considered to have been in the grave for three days. But irrespective of all of that, and in our case... Right? It is not so much the particular day that truly matters as much as it is the event we observe, honor, and memorialize. Even as we are here at Grace Baptist every month, or as often as you do it, partake in the Lord's summer, Supper, commemorating the same, which I believe we will be doing this evening. Uh, now, most of you sitting here today are very well aware um, of the event to which I am referring, namely the Passion of the Christ, his suffering death via crucifixion. However, some of you may perhaps be wondering, or at one point wondered to yourself, uh, why or how on earth can these people, these Christians, associate a thing like that, Jesus' horrific death, with a word like good? Surely death isn't good. Uh, death is a sad and tragic reality uh, of our present existence. Uh, this, this past Sunday, a dear friend of mine's father passed away. Um, and though it wasn't entirely unexpected, for he was, he was pretty ill for quite some time, the, the pain and the grief of the loss is by no means mitigated. Um, or diminish in the slightest, but to the contrary, uh, or rather contrary to popular belief and scientific conjecture, death is not natural. Now think about that. Uh, even at a ripe old age, it may be normal and sadly common, but it is not natural, and it is certainly not a good thing. Death is a curse, and not a curse like in the sense of voodoo or anything like that, uh, but rather the judgment and penalty of a holy God upon sinners. 
Uh, this penalty was initially imposed upon our first parents, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, when despite God's great love and abundant provision uh, for everything that they received from him, they violated the only and single prohibition he gave to them. Uh, and you know the story, Genesis 2, 15 to 17, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Having been deceived by the serpent, a.k.a. Satan, desiring to possess the very wisdom of God for themselves, uh, what did they do? They ate of the fruit, uh, the forbidden fruit, and incurred upon themselves the tragic consequences. Um, The wisdom they thought they'd received turned out to be nothing more than the shame and realization of their own nakedness, right? The buck didn't stop with them. Because of that original transgression, death was thereby spread to all men, and that's you and me, right? You see, we being their offspring inherited their sinful nature. And this is self-evident in the fact that we each sin from our youth. Uh, Now, I don't have kids myself, but I do, however, have nieces and nephews. Sorry if you're watching. Love you guys. Um, No hard feelings. Uh, But one thing you'll learn with children, if you haven't already, is that you never have to teach them to lie. You never have to teach them to steal or to covet or to disrespect authority, even if that said authority exists for their general well-being. Nor does a toddler require formal training in how to throw a tantrum when they don't get their own way. These things are innate to us, and we carry them out. And as we grow older, we only become more sophisticated in the scope and scale of the wicked devices that we carry out, murdering, whoring, stealing, lying, you name it, defrauding everything. Uh, The thing is, in our default state as human beings, we are bound and constrained by our sin. In other words, we're slaves to sin, enslaved to it both by nature, having inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, and by choice, freely and preferably engaging in that which God hates, choose your flavor. Uh, and, and allow me to be clear about what sin is and what sin is not. Right? So sin is not merely bad behavior or objectionable conduct, uh, both of these things being superficial and subject to uh, a wide variety of things such as culture, class, even individual taste. Uh, what sin is, rather, is the transgression of God's law in rebellion against him. It's falling short of the mark or missing the mark, if you will, the mark being his holy and moral standard of perfection revealed in his word. And we see uh, this as defined by many others. Pastor and theologian John Piper, when asked to define sin, once put it like this. It is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, and the person of God not loved. That is sin, the root of which being a heart that prefers and treasures anyone and anything over him. And this is the reason we die, is it not? I mean, in light of the foregoing, in light of all we now understand about sin, uh, we can also begin to understand why the penalty of sin is so steep, for the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, and that the soul who sins shall die, Ezekiel 18.20. So we see death is the supernatural consequence of human sin. But again, perhaps you're wondering, what does any of this have to do with Good Friday? And moreover, what good can possibly have come from the suffering death of Jesus Christ? Great question, and, and what I'd like to do this evening, brothers and sisters, is to look at a portion of Scripture which I believe outlines precisely what and to whom uh, this good has come. So I'd ask you now, if you please turn with me, if you will, in your copy of the Scriptures 
to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Uh, We'll be looking primarily at verses 11 through 14. However, for the sake of context, I will be reading from verse 1 of chapter 10 to verse 14. Uh, And again, that's Hebrews chapter 10. And the word of the Lord says thus, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And in that will, we have been sanctified. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And now to our text, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amen. Uh, The title of this sermon is Once for All. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at those last four verses, verses 11 through 14, using a simple two-point outline. I don't know if it's in your bulletin or not, but the first point will be the many, verse 11, uh, and point number two, the one, verses 12 through 14. Uh, Now for some quick background, uh, the book or letter to the Hebrews, as it was uh, was likely written, as its traditional title suggests, to a primarily Jewish Christian audience. Biblical scholars and, and Christian historians date its authorship to sometime between 60 and 70 AD, so pretty early on in, in the first century. Um, it, if it's not entirely clear who its author was, nor who its original recipients were intended to be, as there is no formal introduction to the book um, or greeting. Some speculate Paul, others Barnabas. There's even Clement, Luke, or Apollos. Nevertheless, uh, we know and we can know for certain whoever he was, he was inspired by the very Spirit of God, right, who we know is the book's true author. A central motif sustained throughout the letter revolves around three words, better, greater, and more. Keep those words in the back of your mind. Occurring some 25 times in the letter, they speak to an overarching theme, which I believe underscores one, Christ as being far superior to any angel, any priest, or any old covenant institution, and two, our duty as Christians uh, and great encouragement to endure remaining steadfast in the faith. The letter starts out with the argument for Jesus' superiority to angelic beings. In chapter one, we're presented with the supremacy of God's son, summing up his uh, person and work in evidencing his sonship. Following this, in chapter 2, we see our first warning. Uh, it is a warning against neglecting salvation that the Son affords on account of him being the founder thereof. Then the offer shifts to an argument for Jesus' superiority to the Mosaic Law, where he will labor in this for about seven and a half chapters. Right? So in chapters 3, 1 through 6, he speaks about Jesus as being better than Moses. 
Then for the remainder of that chapter through verse 13 of the following chapter, chapter 4, we see another warning, and this one concerning a rest for the people of God, that rest being heaven, eternal glory. He then reminds them of their failure, uh, rather the failure of their forebears, they being that first generation who came out of Egypt, to enter this rest. And he exhorts the readers to strive that they may avoid such a fate and rather enter in. Then from verse 14 of chapter 4 through verse 18 of chapter 10, nearer to where we'll be spending the majority of our time this evening, uh, the author lays out an exceptional case for the supremacy of Christ as it relates to his high priesthood. Uh, So having laid this groundwork, let us now look again at our first point, uh, point number one, the many, in verse 11. And we read, Every priest and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Right? The priesthood to which the author of Hebrews is referring was a sacred order instituted by God in the Old Testament through Moses. It was revealed to him, Moses, at, the Mount, at Mount Sinai, a.k.a. Horeb, the place to which the people of Israel had been led following their spectacular deliverance and mass exodus from the oppression of Egypt. These priests were not self-appointed, nor were they popularly elected, but rather divinely appointed by God. Of all the congregation of Israel, of all the tribes from Reuben to Benjamin, the priests under this system were only permitted to hail from the stock of Levi, Levi being the patriarch Jacob, later renamed Israel's third-born son. And of all the tribe of Levi, only those descended from Aaron, Moses' elder brother, were permitted to serve as priests in any capacity. Now, what was the capacity in which they served? What did they do exactly? Well, in a nutshell, the priests were to serve as ministers. Moreover, they were to be representatives and intermediaries between God and man. They were to teach proper reverence, gratitude, praise, sacrificial giving, worship, and a a way of life that was in keeping with God's law, which they had just received. Uh, However, the priest's most important role was as mediator and intercessor. They were to offer prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the people in order to secure God's forgiveness and favor for them, both in this life and the next. Uh, And with the exception of some unique privileges, glorious trappings, and certain additional responsibilities, the high priests were not much different, at least as it relates to their their general function. Hebrews 5, verses 1 through 4 gives us an excellent summation of this. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. But going back to our verse, we see the words, every priest. Right? So the Levitical priest, despite possessing the sacred instruments and various elements of worship and having God's very presence in their midst uh, and before them, nonetheless were fallen human beings. Uh, themselves, and, and therefore they remain subject to fallen human limitations, just as we do, namely death. Uh, we read just three chapters earlier in Hebrews 7.23 that the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. Now, in seeing these terms, every and many, what you need to understand is that we're, we're talking about a, a really long time and a considerably large number of, of people. And I mean, from the establishment of the priesthood to the death of Christ, we're looking at just under 1,500 years, give or take, or, or 48 generations, assuming uh, their generations were not unlike that, which we read in uh, the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke. If you count generations going back towards the time when they came out of, of Egypt, it'd be roughly 48 if you're following that. So a very long time, a very many people. 
in all that time, barring the various plunders, apostasies, annexations, and exile, these priests stood, as our verse says, daily at their service. Every single day for 25 years of their life was to be set apart for the service of God in the tabernacle, which was quite literally a glorified tent, the glorified earthly tent, of course, later replaced by the first and second temples. Even after retirement, they might be expected to stand guard over the tabernacle and the temple and over the holy places, thus ministering to their younger brothers who labored inside. From sunup to sundown, holidays, and even on Sabbath, these men were laboring with great strictness and sobriety as was necessary. Uh, And these things were necessary because they were ministering before the Lord and before people that had a great sin problem. And you got to understand, this service was, to, to put it lightly, an extremely, extremely bloody affair. I mean, the amount of animals that had to be sacrificed on any given day was probably astronomical. By the time of David, according to his census in 2 Samuel chapter 24, the undertaking of which, ironically, uh, led to him having to provide some additional oxen to the slaughter, as he himself sinned in doing this, uh, estimated the population of both Israel and Judah to be approximately 1.3 million and at least 1.3 million. I say at least because the census only accounted for able-bodied men. Uh, But that's insane. 1.3 million sinners in need of atonement, and and not for just one instance, as we certainly don't sin just once in our lives, now do we? Uh, But for as many transgressions as was necessary. I mean, God took this so seriously that the high priest was to offer a set of sacrifices that sole purpose was essentially to cover any sins that both he himself and the people of Israel may have committed and missed throughout the previous year, hence Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But you want to know something? All of that sacrifice, all of that blood, all of those offerings was still insufficient in and of itself to take away sins, even the the very sins they were being offered for, not to mention the sin you'd probably commit right as you walked away from the entrance of the tent grumbling over the fact that you just paid good money for a goat that you killed and handed over, and now you've got to clean your clothes because it's full of blood. Um, but you see my point. And our verse also says that these sacrifices can never, not ever, nunca, one less word for our brother to translate, <laughs> take away sins. They, they were not enough. These offerings were not enough. And, and, and they were offered again in astronomical numbers every day, sun up to sundown. And I ask you now, are you standing daily at the altar of your own piety? Are you repeatedly offering the same sacrifices, presuming in self-deception that God, Almighty God, a holy God, will accept them apart from his grace? Newsflash, he won't. And newsflash, it won't. The offerings won't. Scripture tells us that because of sin, we have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds, our good works, for whatever they're worth, and that's nothing, are like a polluted garment, filthy rags, Think menstrual cloths. That's what our piety amounts to in the eyes of God, apart from his grace. For you see, the whole system in and of itself was meant to fail. It was meant to prove inadequate because it was pointing to something better, something greater, something more. Just as we read earlier, the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, not the true form of these realities. And further, that these same repeatedly offered sacrifices were incapable of bringing about the perfection which God demands, which is why they had to be offered every year, year after year. The law served to show us, all the law served to show us, rather, was our sinfulness. And to that end, it was very effective. And all the sacrifice's purpose to do was to remind us of said sinfulness because animal sacrifice, 
right? The, the, the sacrifice of an animal could never cleanse the human heart, nor purify the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So what could? Right? We read on. But when Christ... And, and just stop for a second. How beautiful are those words? Whenever we see in Scripture, but God, but Christ, we know that something, something amazing is going to follow. Uh, point number two. This brings us to our, our next and final point. Point number two. The one. But when Christ, verse 12, had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. As we read earlier in this chapter in verses 5 through 7, a, a body, right, was prepared for Christ. The eternal and pre-existing Son was sent into the world to take on flesh and to become a man like you and like me. And being a man, he was subject to the same frailties and human weakness, such as we are, minus the sin. And why was this so? Verse 6, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Again, these things were not desirable to God. He wasn't on his throne happily applauding when burnt offerings were offered to him. They served their purpose, but they were fading away. So what was Jesus to do with this body that he was to be given? Verse 7, then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. What was his will? Well, we can look at his name. I know it's not Christmas, but when the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, he instructed the child was to be named Jesus. And do you remember the reason for that? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua in the Hebrew or Aramaic, or Yesu in the Greek, means Yahweh saves, Yahweh being the covenant name of God. Whenever you see Lord in all caps in a, in a certain translation of the scripture, that's, that's Yahweh. Um, it means Yahweh saves um, or the Lord is salvation. In order to save his people, he would have to condescend to us, live among us, suffer like us, and die for us, as a theologian once said. You know, we talk a lot about the cross, uh, the blood, about how Jesus suffered, how he died. Uh, it's, it's, it's very common vernacular, certainly in church. and uh, Even now, as we, we come to Passion Week, others talking about these things. But sometimes I fear, and I speak for myself, that we become a bit desensitized uh, to the reality of what, just what took place uh, at Calvary when he suffered in those final hours. Um, we live in a society far removed from the spectacle of, uh, increasingly so, rather from the uh, very reality of capital punishment. We barely even have the death penalty anymore, and whether or not you consider that a good thing is neither here nor there, um, but under Roman rule in the first century, the opposite was true. Though they had an invented crucifixion, they, they certainly perfected it. Crucifixions were meant to inflict maximum pain and torture upon its victim. They were carried out in public so that all who witnessed its horrors would be deterred from crossing any lines drawn by the Roman government. Crucifixion was so horrible that it was reserved only for the worst offenders. Victims of the crucifixion were first severely scourged, whipped, or beaten, which was a life-threatening ordeal in and of itself, and then forced to carry the large wooden cross beam, that is the shorter one, horizontal, uh, to the site of their own demise. Right? And mind you, after this beating, not only was this extremely taxing, but equally shameful as the victim was carrying the very instrument of his own death to his death. Uh, when the victim arrived at the place of the crucifixion, he was stripped naked to further his shame and then forced to stretch out his arms on the cross beam where they were then summarily nailed in place. The nails were hammered through the wrists, not the palms, which kept the nails from pulling through the hand, right? And you're writhing in pain, it's easier, you have a little bit more leverage to get your hand out through the wrist, you're pretty much locked in place. 
and the placement of the nails in the wrist also caused immense pain as the nails pierced large nerves running through the hands. The crossbeam would then be hoisted up and fastened to an upright piece making that T. All the while, you're on it. And after fastening that crossbeam, the executioners would then nail the victim's feet to the cross as well, normally one foot on top of the other, right through the middle and arc of the foot, rendering the knees slightly bent. I mean, you can only imagine just the, the, the insufferable pain that the person would be in. Once the victim was fastened to the cross, all of his weight was then supported by those three nails, right? Two in the hands, one in the feet. This would cause severe pain to shoot throughout the entire body, and the victim's arms were sp- uh, stretched out in such a way so as to cause cramping and paralysis in the chest, muscles, uh, making it nearly impossible to breathe unless some of the weight was borne by the feet. And so in order to take a breath, the victim had to push up with his feet, which again were nailed. To make matters worse, in addition to enduring the pain by the nail in his feet, the victim's raw back, which had been whipped and scourged, was scraping against the most likely and often unfinished upright cross beam that he was on. After taking a breath in order to relieve some of the pain in his feet, the victim would then have to begin to slump down again, this action putting more weight into the wrist again, rubbing his back all the while against the cross. However, the victim would not, breathe in this lowered, would not be able to breathe in this lowered position, so before long, the torturous process would begin again, whereby in order to breathe and relieve some of the pain caused by the nails in his wrist, the victim would then have to put more weight on the nails in his feet by pushing up. But in order to relieve some of the pain caused by the nail in the feet, he would then have to, be, he would then have to put more weight on the nails in his wrist and slump down again, lending to an ever-vicious cycle, an excruciating cycle of, of pain. And in fact, that very word excruciating comes from this vile practice, right? In the Latin ex meaning out of or from, or cruciate meaning cross. What's really messed up about this was that this was no criminal. This was no offender. This was an innocent man. In fact, the only one who ever walked the face of the earth about whom you can actually say that and be correct. He came to his own people, a people over whom he wept. But just like the builders, they rejected him, the chief cornerstone. His own disciples abandoned him, even his closest, Peter, who thrice denied his very association. But you want to know the worst part about what Jesus suffered on the cross? During those six hours, it wasn't merely the physical or even the emotional torment he faced because he'd, he'd already faced some of those things to various degrees during his earthly ministry. No, the worst part of what he suffered was the holy wrath and forsaking of his father with and in whom he had eternally existed in perfect fellowship and unity from eternity past. This was the reason why he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before, asking that if feasible and if in accordance with the Father's will, this cup, the cup being God's wrath, might pass from him. Yet even still, the author of Hebrews would encourage us, just uh, two chapters later in Hebrews 12.2, Right, that Jesus, this suffering Savior, the founder and perfecter of our faith, endured the cross, despising the shame. And by what virtue was he willing and able to endure such suffering and such shame as this? We read, it was for the joy that was set before him. It was the joy of accomplishing the Father's will, John eight twenty nine. the joy of finding and securing the lost sheep. Um, Luke 15, 5-7, the joy of the Father's sovereignty in the revelation of himself to infants and babes, Luke 10, 21, and the joy abounding even in himself, which he desired nothing more to be also found in his people. John 17, 13. I encourage you greatly if, um, if ever you're in doubt of what Jesus has done for you and his heart for you, read John chapter 17, his high priestly prayer. 
It is such an encouragement. Um, and at the appointed time, knowing that all was finished, he declared it to be so, bowing his head and commending his spirit unto God, relinquishing his life. And now he is risen and victorious and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, two things to note about this language, right hand. Right? We see it five times in the book of Hebrews alone. Um, thing number one, the right hand signified strength and power. If you were at a ruler's right hand so as to be his right-hand man, it meant you were in a position of authority and were essentially all but equals to that person. So by way of example, we can look at Joseph, who in Genesis 39 was set over all Potiphar's possession, and then two chapters later, uh, again in, in Genesis 41, over all of Egypt, right? Second-hand man to Pharaoh, and he was only under him concerning his throne. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father, who happens to be the highest authority in the universe and outside of it as well. Uh, not only that, he and the Father are one, John 10.30 only distinct in the roles that they serve in the Trinity. And the scriptures are chock full of material testifying to the preeminence and supremacy of Christ. You read through Hebrews alone and you'll just be overwhelmed with that. Number two, he is seated. Being that he is seated means that he, uh, his work is complete as far as redemption goes. The offering of himself and his sacrifice uh, of his uh, blood has been accepted by the Father. We also see that he is seated with a purpose. Verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. As sure as I'm standing here right now, the enemies of Christ will be made a footstool for his feet. It's not a question. Uh, the Father will be sure of that. He's promised it. They will be utterly crushed under the weight of his might and without any respite, any rest, from the greatest to the least of them. Already at the cross of Christ, Jesus dealt a blow to the kingdom of Satan, and at long last, the promise of Genesis 3.15 had been fulfilled. The serpent's head was bruised at the expense of the offspring's heel, and the victory was won. And since we see uh, that Jesus is waiting, we know that his triumph over all of his uh, we know that his triumph over all of his adversaries is not a matter of if, but when. It's just a matter of time, and we've got none to waste. Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Uh, uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth and this happens every single day and, and how does this happen? How is the wrath of God revealed every single day? When sinners die in their sin, that's how and to avoid this, all men are urged to pay homage to the son and make terms of peace, right? We read in uh, 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 the psalm of David, psalm 2 verse 12, kiss the son lest he perish, be, be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So are you among that lot? Are you among those who are blessed and take refuge? Or will you become an eternal footstool? These are very valid questions, and we need to ask ourselves um, these things. Moving into verse 14. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And how can that be? You mean to tell me that 1,500 years of bloodshed, three dozen generations of priests, and an entire sacrificial system were all supplanted by the single offering of one man by one sacrifice? Well, yes, and not only that. You see, by this one offering, this single sacrifice, not only did Christ supplant the sacrificial system, but he first fulfilled it in its entirety. Remember those shadows we talked about earlier? Well, he is the substance from which they are cast. You don't have a shadow without an object casting it, even such as this pulpit. 
uh, right? The pattern shown to Moses on the holy mountain, uh, patterns concerning the design of the tabernacle, the form of the instruments, the, uh, the details of the garments, these were all but copies of their heavenly counterparts. I mean, this is really deep stuff, and yet deeper still is the reality of Jesus as our great high priest, who didn't just minister in an earthly tent with earthly things, but who ministers right now as he stands risen, as he's seated risen, in the heavenly places. His order was not of the Levitical priesthood, which ceased at his death, but rather after the order of Melchizedek, that ancient king and priest who blessed Abraham in Genesis 14 and who lives forever, the king of righteousness and of peace, whom I believe was an Old Testament manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ himself, or who else has borne such titles as that. And Jesus, having been appointed a priest forever after this order, uh, was therefore alone worthy to offer up a sacrifice that had the power and magnitude to make holy and perfect a people who were once wicked and imperfect. And again, that's, that's us. Unlike the former priests, this high priest was perfect and righteous, thus without the need to make atonement for himself like the other priests. And again, this makes him the only one worthy to pay for the sins of others. You can't pay for my sin if you, you're paying for your own. And being that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, though sinlessly, he was able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And because of this, we don't need Mary. We don't need some guy in a confessional. Uh, all we need is Jesus, as do they. Uh, he came as a man because it was man, Adam, who sinned, and we in Adam. Right? So the father remains perfectly just and, and, and balanced in it, uh, accepting the son's blood and the son's offering for us because the son was made to be like us. It wasn't a bull or a goat or a ram that was being offered to you, uh, for you rather, but a lamb, and not a literal lamb, but the promised one, the promised lamb, the lamb that Abraham knew God would provide even as he found the ram caught in the thicket. The Passover lamb, uh, uh, about which many of the, the, the Jews this coming few days will be celebrating, on whose blood the lintel of the doorpost keeps death and the destroyer at bay. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, triumphantly heralded by John the Baptist as he saw his Messiah coming towards him. And lastly, the Lamb slain since the foundation of the world in whom all of the saints, including those who lived before his earthly coming, could place their hope. It was, um, it was Paul Washer who once said, after an eternity of eternities in heaven, you will not even have reached the foothills of understanding the glory of God as it relates to the cross of Christ. Uh, now, this perfection spoken of in our verse doesn't mean that we are sinless at present. Though we are positionally righteous, right, and legally justified before God in Christ, we still wage war with sin in our flesh and will continue to do so each and every day until either he calls us home or he comes again uh, in his glory. What it does mean is that he has eternally secured for all his people, for all time, a perfection to which they will lay hold of in due season. And on our way to that end, we're being sanctified day by day. Even now, as we sit under the preaching of the word, as we have fellowship, as we serve one another, God is just molding us in that, 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 that perfect righteousness that we already have in Christ, right? And this is something that we'll, we'll see by his grace day by day. Uh, and this is why when we sin, even as Christians, yet confess it to him, he is both faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John, 1 John 1, 9. He remains faithful and just because of the sacrifice of the blood that was shed, having in itself the power to cleanse us not only on the outside, but inwardly, right? Even as we just sang earlier, sinners plunge neath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. 
well, in conclusion, as you may recall, I referenced two verses earlier in the message uh, when we were looking at our sin problem. Uh, however, what I purposely omitted until now was that there are more to each. Who could have guessed? For while the wages of sin indeed is death, Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You call Pastor Phil and he doesn't pick up. You're going to hear that verse playing on a message. <laughs> and, and while the soul who sins shall surely die, Ezekiel 18.20, yet God entreats his people Israel through the prophet in verses 21 through 23, wherein we read, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him for the righteousness that he has done. He shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. Now, we've already established that none but Christ has kept or is able to keep the law of God as God would require it. When we try, we fail immediately, intentionally or otherwise. But the real reason we fail in keeping the law is not merely because of an inadequacy on our part. Don't get me wrong, it certainly is that. Uh, but all the more because of a prescription on God's part. You see, just as the priests of old, we too were destined to fail with regard to law-keeping. The Apostle Paul reminds the saints of this in Galatians 3.10-12, wherein he writes, For all who rely on the work of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. The righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, the law, shall live by them. And herein lies the good news. Because the law has been kept and fulfilled by the Savior. And because of his once for all, all sufficient sacrifice for sins. Because he was buried and has now raised and even in accordance with the scriptures. We can be forgiven. The onus is no longer on us to keep the law and, and have that expectation before God. Because Christ has done it for us. And that perfect righteousness, which he and he alone merited, can be imputed or transferred to us even as our sin, past, present, and future, is now imputed or transferred onto him when he, when he died on the cross. And this, my friends, is grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. Continuing in that same passage of Galatians, in the following verses, Paul writes, Galatians 3, 13 to 15, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Look around, you Christian. Seriously, look around. Has God not remained faithful in effectuating this promise for two millennia? Has he not broadcast the expression of his love uh, in the salvation of us Gentiles? He has. Just a few points of application and encouragement and then a warning. If this day you have been bought by the blood and have been perfected by that all time, all, uh, once for all time sacrifice, then have confidence and don't let that confidence go. Have confidence not in your own works or your own offerings, but in Christ's perfect work, Christ's perfect offering. Renounce the fleeting pleasures of this dying world, the sins and the weights which cling so closely, and instead cling to your Lord, cling to your Savior. Cling to your Savior, for though he died this night some 2,000 years ago, and he was buried, yet we know the tomb is empty this day. We know he is risen, he lives, and he lives to ever intercede for you. 
in your time of weakness, in your time of doubt, in your time of worry, anxiety, fear, failure, run. Run to Jesus. Run away from all that and run to Jesus. Run to him that you, like the saints, may confidently sing before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hand, even the nailed hand. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Lay down your life, if need be, literally. We, we don't hope that, but uh, if not and otherwise until then, forsake worldly ambition. Laying down your life is, is being a living sacrifice. Not making it about you, but making it about Christ. Deny yourself. Be about the business of killing sin. Put off the old man. Put on Christ. Serve the saints. Love one another. And love is not a feeling. It's a command. Therefore, you can do it. If you're indwelt by the Spirit, we can love one another. I encourage you after we conclude this sermon, really get to speak to someone who's new, get to speak to someone you don't normally speak to. Let us grow and, and love one another. When we have opportunities to gather, whether like this formally, under the preaching of God's word, or informally, sharing a meal with a brother or sister throughout the week, do not neglect it, but use it as an opportunity to stir one another up into love and good works. Encourage that person. Challenge that person, even as you would be encouraged and challenged. Run the race of faith with endurance, for that is what we have need of. Preach and proclaim this wonderful news. Share it with family, share it with friends, share it with co-workers, colleagues, strangers, in, yes, even those who oppose you. Sure, some will mock, even more will reject it. We know this. They, if they did so to our master, they'll certainly do so to us, for no servant is above his master. But remember, he has overcome the world. Having received all authority in heaven and earth, we are hidden in him. And in that, by that, we are sent out, we are commissioned. All of those whom the Father is drawing to the Son, the Son will no wise cast out. I mean, think about yourself. He drew you to the Son. Has he cast you out? He hasn't. He's kept you, and he will keep you yet. On the other hand, if you don't walk with him, and by walk with him, I mean if your life is not in any way been transformed by his grace, nowhere is this grace manifested in the way that you live, speak, act, think, then don't deceive yourself, please. But all the more, don't harden your heart. Don't put up the wall, don't roll the eyes, don't fold the hands, and, and don't dismiss the things that you've heard this evening. For whenever it happens, and, and mark my words, it will happen, and you know the it to which I'm talking about, whether you breathe your last or he comes again in glory, you will regret ever having heard even this sermon. And you will wish that you were merely a footstool for his feet. Don't, don't be that. But today, as the scripture tells us, is the day of salvation. If you feel the conviction of the spirit, if you feel that, that tugging, that gnawing in your heart, in your mind, even the discomfort in your own soul, let it find no rest but in the loving embrace of your Savior who hung on a cross for you. And alternatively, if you're under the impression that the Savior can't forgive you, perhaps you've done too much, you've gone too far, you've backslidden too deep, then know you'd be the first that he couldn't save. Turn from your sin. Confess it to the Father. Believe in Jesus. Believe what he has accomplished on that cross was sufficient and applicable to you. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19, 10. There's good news this Friday. And you can be forgiven by this good news. You can be perfected. You can be reconciled to God. Repent and believe this good news. Believe the Savior that died and believe that he died for sinners like me and like you. Let's not pray.
Father God, Lord, we, we're overwhelmed, oh God, by your love for us, by your grace, by your mercy. Lord, um, we are sinners who not deserve in the least even the smallest amount of your kindness and your blessing, oh God, and yet you showered, you showered it upon us, oh God. Lord, our Savior, he hung from that cross and he died, oh Lord, and he had his people in mind and he was joyful in it. God, help us, Lord, help us. God, help us where we're weak. Help us where we do not deny ourselves, where we do not take up our cross, where we do not follow you, where we do not love you, O God. Lord, be magnified, O Father God, through this word. I pray that as we go from here, O Lord, that we would be changed by it. O Lord, that we would be ever changed by it, O Father God, and unto your glory. We praise you, and we praise you in your son's precious name. Amen.